thank you for listening to this Calvary Aurora Bible study with Pastor Ed Taylor. We pray as you study through God's Word that you're blessed by God's abounding grace. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to John's Gospel, chapter 18. John's Gospel, chapter 18. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And we're going to continue on in our verse-by-verse study. We've spent quite a bit of time on this sub-series of prayer. And we looked at it from John 17, and then we finished John 17 together and went over to Matthew chapter 6 and the Lord's Prayer. Then we went into the Garden of Gethsemane, which we'll revisit this week. Uh, We went in and looked at the Garden of Gethsemane in some depth last week. And today we continue on in the shadow of the cross because the cross is just up ahead. And Jesus has finished his teaching ministry. Uh, He's done teaching. Uh, He has done giving um, the instruction. We know that because of John 17. When he's praying in verse 4, he says, I have glorified you on the earth, and I have finished the work that you have given me to do. And it won't be long now that Jesus will be hanging on a Roman cross, crucified for the sins of the world, for your sins and mine. Now remember, the disciples don't know this yet, but they're about to experience the absolute worst day in their lives just in a few days. They don't know that yet. Jesus has been preparing them. We know they have things on their mind. We know that they're concerned. We we know that they're fearful. We know emotions are flowing because John 14 opened. Remember, Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And he's taking the time in these final moments, beginning in John 14, to, to settle the disciples and prepare them for the worst day of their lives. They don't know that yet. We do because we can look back on it. But also I want you to know that they, the worst day of their life is going to be followed by some of the best days of their life. And I just believe the Lord would have me to share that with you today because some of you woke up this morning and, and it's maybe not the worst day of your life, but it's been a bad season in your life. It's been a difficult time. And, and you're in a season that's been hard. It, it's, it's been tumultuous, a lot of spiritual warfare, a lot of pain, a lot of emotion. And like the disciples, better days are ahead. Better days are ahead. Or we could say the best is still yet to come. But better days are ahead. From, from the crucifixion of Jesus, it would just be three days until the resurrection of Jesus. And he comes back and spends time with them and encourages them. I just, just for some of you, it's a word from the Lord to you. It's a, it's a word just to your heart the better days are ahead. Just stay with him. Stay close to him. As we learn in John 15, the safest place and the best place for you and me on the earth today is to be abiding in Jesus Christ, to be taking all of our nutrients and all that we need for life from the vine as the vine dresser takes so good care of us. With that in mind, notice in chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. That garden has a name, and his name is Gethsemane. We looked at it last time. Gethsemane means olive press. And unlike the modern-day manufacturing that we have today, they would have the olive presses in the garden near the trees. They wouldn't take all the olives and then transport them. Most They would take care of it right in that area. And the olive press... The olive press, Gethsemane, would speak of crushing. 
This time in the garden was a time of crushing. And what they would do is take the olives and they would crush them and squeeze them in order to produce oil. And what we're finding with Jesus is he too would be squeezed and he would be crushed in order to produce the oil of salvation for your life and mine. It would be in this very garden where Jesus himself would be crushed as he submits to the will of the Father. In his time there, it was so difficult and so hard that Luke, Dr. Luke gives us insight of what was going on. And in Luke's gospel, chapter 22, we're told that being in agony, speaking of Jesus, he prayed more earnestly than his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This garden, this area, wasn't the first area where a great betrayal took place. For homework, jot it down in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Those of you that were with us when we studied through 2 Samuel, you'll recall that it was in this very area in the Mount of Olives in the Brook Kidron, in that whole valley there, that Ahithophel betrayed David. And Ahithophel, you recall, is described by David as the man that used to take sweet counsel together, a very trusted friend. He too was betrayed in this area. And now as we put the pieces together throughout the Bible, comparing, well, comparing the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane, or what the Bible does, the Bible says that Adam in the Garden of Eden is the first Adam, and the Bible speaks of Jesus as the last Adam. And there's a great contrast between the two. Consider this. In the Garden of Eden, man first lost his relationship with the Father through sin. The first Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, that relationship was restored through submission and sacrifice. In the Garden of Eden, the first Adam tried to hide from God unsuccessfully. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the last Adam bared his soul to God the Father. In the Garden of Eden, man, man was driven out because of his sin. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prepares the last Adam, to die for sin. You recall in the Garden of Eden, a sword was taken out and men were driven out and that sword was put there to never enter again. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, that sword was put away and a man was healed. And as one commentator put it, that which was lost in the Garden of Eden will be reclaimed in the Garden of Paradise. All because of Jesus submitting in this Garden of the Olive Press, Gethsemane. We included the Garden of Gethsemane because there was a short prayer, actually three short prayers of Jesus in the garden. And the emphasis in Gethsemane really isn't on the prayer of Jesus as much as it was the prayer of submission. So I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. When you think of Gethsemane, think not only of the olive press, but also think of submission. That's the most important part that's taking place in the Garden of Gethsemane is the submission of the Son to the will of the Father. Remember his prayer. He's praying in agony. He's like, if there's any other way this cup can pass, if there's any other way you can accomplish your will, Father, any other way you can save humanity, any other way but the agonizing path of the cross. And then Jesus says, no, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It's a prayer of submission. Church, I can't emphasize and stress enough the importance of submission in your life and in mine. Jesus shows us here in the garden how precious it can be. 
Webster's Dictionary defines submission as this, to yield to authority, to permit oneself to be subjected to someone. Mutual submission is one of the bedrocks of any culture and any relationship, any family, any church. Submission is key. A lack of submission brings about rebellion and anarchy. And submission is something that God has ordained. We're not going to go to every single verse, but let me go through a few verses with you so that you can understand the importance of submission. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, we're taught children are to be submissive to their parents. And every single parent listening says, Amen. Ah, Come on, stay with me, guys. Every single parent says, Amen. Amen. Of course we want that. And yet there's a lot to say about parents. <laughs> so get your amens ready, parents. Children, be submissive to your parents. Secondly, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 17. Christians, be submissive to church leadership. (laughs) Servants, or today modern-day employees, are to be uh, subjected to and submissive to their masters or employers. And that's a big... Yeah, 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 yeah. Submission gets rough, doesn't it? It gets tough. Just consider this for a second. Submission isn't necessary when you agree with someone. When you agree with someone, you do everything willingly and joyfully and you say, let's go. But submission is really necessary on those points of disagreement. That you would trust that God would put somebody in your life to teach you or to lead you or to guide you or to help you. And you would trust God to submit to him. Of course, submission doesn't relate to sinful things. Submission doesn't relate to, you know, like for example, the next one is holy wives submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. First Peter chapter 3 verse 5. Amen. Crickets. All the men are saying amen. That's not, no, 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 no. <laughs> like for example, wives, and we get this question often, especially in unequally yoked situations or when a husband is given direction that's not biblical or not helpful. You submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. So if your husband comes and says, okay, honey, the Bible says submit to me, so let's go rob a bank. Let me give you the answer. The answer is no. We don't rob banks. And we don't submit to those that say let's go rob banks. The Bible actually teaches the opposite of that. We don't run with those that are taking us towards sin. But wives, submission is a very key part of the marriage relationship as unto the Lord. God will use it in your life. Not only that, the Bible says Christians be submissive to one another, Ephesians chapter 5. The Bible says younger believers submit to your elders, 1 Peter chapter 5. And then in James chapter 4 verse 7, it speaks of our complete submission to God. Turn over now to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's look at that briefly. Submission is needed. And when you think of Gethsemane, think not just of the garden. Think not of just the olive press, but think also of submission. And I dare say that God would include this in our Bible study today because there are some people listening in that have an issue with submission in their life. You might even be wearing it as a badge. I'm I'm unsubmissive and I don't need to put up with that and I don't need... Listen, you're missing out on a key element in your relationship with God by your lack of submission. Submission is required when we don't agree. That's where God really brings out in us a faith and a trust that God has put that person in our lives. Not for sinful things, not for sinful directions, not at all. 
but certainly, we, we've taught this in our servants class here at the church. When you're preparing to serve, wherever you serve, in whatever church you serve in, where there's godly leadership, that's to be matched with our godly submission. That's God's heart and will for us within the body. But notice this. There's also submission among us as believers. The way that we are able to enjoy the the fruit of God's presence among us, that we enjoy the family of God is through our mutual submission. And you'll notice in verse 19, this is a church that's enjoying God. This church in Ephesus is a church that's really enjoying the relationship that they have with one another. And notice what it looks like. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 21. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. It's a key element with us together. Learning how to submit to one another. And it brings joy in our lives. And then Paul speaks about wives submitting. And then he speaks about husbands loving after we learn that submitted relationship here in the family. The idea of submission, church, is an important one. The truth of submission is key. We learned the Webster's Dictionary, but from the original Greek language, that word submission comes to us from two different Greek words, one meaning under and the other meaning in order. And the definition of the original language is to submit or arrange under or to obey. They used it very often within the military. It's a military term. And and it basically means to get in order and to submit. It means to stay in the direction that you've been given and to come up under. It's something that we willingly do as unto the Lord. The arranging and the ordering of troops. But it was also used in the first century to describe voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, and assuming responsibility. And you can see when you have this big argument where there's no movement, when one person gives in, the other person assumes responsibility, God can begin to work. Another way of looking at that is when one person repents and the other forgives, it opens up the channel for the Holy Spirit to work. We can't emphasize submission enough, especially in our day and age where submission is not valued. It's dismissed. The, the, the idea of submission in our culture simply is you submit to whatever your own ideas and do whatever you want no matter what other people. This whole existential idea that the end always justifies the means or, and it's not true. We need to let the Lord justify to us what the means are to his end, his purposes, and his plans. And here we are as we look at our time in Bible study. We're submitted to the Lord and mutually submitted to one another. The Garden of Gethsemane is a place of submission. Notice verse 2. And Judas, now at at this point, we should all be booing Judas. We've done that at every service. So next time I say, and Judas, I want you to boo him, okay? You ready? So I'm going to read it from the beginning. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, and there was a garden which he and his disciples entered, and Judas, yeah, we should boo him the betrayer, the one that turned on our Jesus. But don't forget, we learned last time we were together, there's a little bit of Judas in all of us. There's a little bit of betrayal in all of us. 
self-centeredness, looking out for ourselves. So when you boo, make sure you remember yourself. You don't want that attribute in your life. You don't want to go down as a betrayer, do you? I don't. I want to go down as somebody that was loyal and someone that was faithful to the very end. And so when you think of Judas, you know, if it was a movie, we would be, it would be so fun, it would be so great, and then the lights would go down in verse 2, and Judas, boo, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. How many times in three years has Judas been with Jesus in the garden? Watching him, praying with him, praying for him. This was nothing new to Judas. And yet... He doesn't come alone, notice. Then Judas. (laughs) Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops. That doesn't tell us much. But let me tell you what it means. Over 600 Roman soldiers is this detachment. Judas came with 600 Roman armed guard soldiers to take Jesus. What did he tell them? What did he tell them about Jesus? That they would need 600 men to come and take. Not only that, 600 men, but there's the religious leaders of the day, the officers and the chief priests and the Pharisees that are putting all this this conspiracy together. And not only that, they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. What? Now this is taking place around the Passover. That's where they shared the last meal. Those of you that study such things, you know Passover is a full moon. A full moon means it's very bright and easy to see. You don't need lanterns and torches. You don't need 600 soldiers. What has Judas said? I don't know what he said because it doesn't tell us what report he gave in its entirety. But whatever he said, Jesus was misunderstood. He wasn't there to ambush anybody to come. They weren't hiding to try to jump out after him after this, these guys. He wasn't going to fight. And, and haven't you learned that some of the greatest difficulties that you have with others have happened over misunderstandings? Someone misunderstood you. You misunderstood someone else. Maybe you believe the gossip or whatever it might be. Judas coming certainly did not tell them the truth except that I know where he's at. He's always in Gethsemane. I know where he's at. I know where to find him. I know the garden that he frequents. And here they are, 600 soldiers, lanterns, and it's just ridiculous. How often we find ourselves misunderstanding the Lord Jesus Christ in our own lives. Here's Judas. He lived with him for three years, ate with him for three years, listened to him, served with him. Judas is one of the guys for sure that I believe is going to stand before Jesus in the judgment seat and say, didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I do this in your name? And Jesus will look him square in the eye and say, yeah, but I never knew you. There's no relationship. I like what commentator Warren Wiersbe writes. Let me quote him. Judas was not truly a disciple of Jesus Christ, though he belonged to the disciple band. In the garden, Judas stood with the enemy, and not with Jesus' friends. When people today pretend to know and love the Lord, they are committing the sin of Judas. Let me repeat that. Those that are hypocritical, those that are pretending, 
When people today pretend to know and love the Lord, they are committing the sin of Judas. It is bad enough to betray Christ, but to do it with a kiss and the sign of affection is the basest treachery of all. It was born in the pit of hell. If you consider this scene and how 600 people, it's more than, just about less than half this room, this side, that's how, this, if every seat was full, this side was with to take Jesus and his 11 disciples. Or this side, if you, I don't want to leave you guys out. Okay, this side, if, you, if, if it was, I mean, this side of the room would go into a small little garden. I mean, it, it's, Judas completely misunderstood the Lord. It was all for himself and a few bucks of which he quickly regretted. He so misunderstood Jesus. Jesus answers, notice in verse 4, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Then when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. And then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. And the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me. I have lost none. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And then Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? He submitted already. And the scene is one that is chaotic. Who are you seeking? We know in another, another gospel writer tells us that Judas went up to him and kissed him to identify him in the group. And Jesus asks, who are you seeking? And he answers, notice, there's two theological things. I've developed in other Bible studies, but I'm going to give them to you now. The first one is in verse 4, when Jesus, therefore, knowing all things. Circle those words, knowing all things, because that's a great way of understanding a very important doctrinal truth about Jesus, the Son of God, and that is, he knew all things. And the theological word for that is omniscient. So when you hear that word omniscient, it means he has all knowledge. None of this is a surprise to Jesus. He's God in human flesh, and he knew all things. And then secondly, he claims himself here to be God. When he says, who are you seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He answers, I am. This is the Greek phrase, ego I may. And it takes us back, you can jot it down, takes us back to Exodus chapter 3, where Moses is there getting his direction from from the Father to deliver the children of Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And Moses says, who do I say is sending me? Who, Who is it? And God replies to him, you tell them that I am sent you, the becoming one. He begins to describe himself in a beautiful way. Jesus is claiming here. John is claiming he had all knowledge. Jesus is claiming and very rightly so, to be God in his deity and nature. We have developed that in other Bible studies. I encourage you to get them online. Peter in verse 10, I, we looked at him a little bit uh, deeper last time, but just the love that Peter had for his friend, for his mentor, for his rabbi, for his savior, it's commendable. It's too bad that Peter gets a bad rap all the time for his mistakes. 
Because I think if we followed you around for three years, we'd have quite a bit of mistakes to write about you too and me. A lot of highs and a lot of lows. But can you consider Peter was so loyal, so faithful, so trustworthy that at the word of Jesus, he stepped out of a boat and is recorded as walking on water. Peter. Yeah, he's the same one that is so strong like we saw last time right there saying, I will never deny you. All these guys will deny. I will never deny you. And what did Jesus have to say? Oh, not only will you deny me, but before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. I believe that when Jesus told Peter that, it went right to his heart. He was a passionate guy. He was the kind of guy that lived with his emotions on his sleeves. And you never had to guess where Peter was, what he was thinking, what he thought about something, because he was so impetuous, and he just he was the kind of guy where, man, you knew if he was happy, you knew if he was sad, you knew if he was mad, you, you knew where he was. And to have Jesus look him in the eye in front of his other ten friends saying, you're going to deny me worse than all the others, Peter. It's far. You, you, there is so much in you you don't know, Peter. It's going to be so bad. It's going to be so painful. I think he took that to heart. I think it pricked his emotion. I think that what we see here in verse 10 is probably an act of emotion. He acts out of emotion here. He takes out his sword, which is the smaller sword, not the bigger sword. It's a smaller sword, and he goes after the high priest's servant. And what do we learn? We learn a lot of things. First of all, man, he was a great fisherman, but not a good swordsman. I think he was going after the head, and he got the ear. And he cut it right off. And yet, what did Jesus do? He's so gracious, so wonderful. He healed the guy right there. And I'm sure Peter appreciates that healing because there was no evidence to say, Peter tried to kill me. Say, well, show us. Where where did that happen? He cut my ear off. Well, show me your ear. You know, show me the hole. It's like, no, my ear's back. Jesus put it back on. You know, and you go, what are you going to do in the court of law? Because it's good that Jesus healed him because Peter could have very well hung on a cross, not with a thief, taking the thief's place. The, The penalty for what he did would be crucifixion. It's good that he missed. It's good that God, that Jesus healed him there. But I think... You can jot it down. I think what we're seeing in Peter's life here is something the Bible calls zeal without knowledge. Passion not rooted in the truth. And unfortunately, that's very common. Romans chapter 10 speaks of a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Peter's passionate about helping here, but lacks the foundation of wisdom. Jesus did not need Peter's protection. Jesus did not want Peter's protection. Jesus did not ask for Peter's protection, but his emotions got the best of him. And he acts out in this passion to protect his friend. And there are many in the church today, in the church world today, that are zealous and passionate, but lack a foundation in God's word. And what happens is that they're running to and fro with things they've set her from the Lord, that they want to be from the Lord, but in reality, they're not rooted in God at all and have no basis or substance in the Word of God. And they're zealous, but they haven't matched it with knowledge. Zeal, remember, always needs to be channeled with the truth so that it doesn't hurt others. Let me bring it down to us. 
We're not going to be in the garden with Jesus with 600 soldiers, but we do live lives where we're surrounded by people. And we are emotional human beings. God created us with emotion. Some of you are just like Peter. You wear your emotions on your sleeve. There isn't, it's not really hard to find out if you're happy or sad or what you're feeling about. And, and we all have feelings. And feelings can be very strong and very powerful. And let me just say this. When you're ministering to someone, opening the Bible to them and helping them get through something, one of the worst things you can do is to try to talk somebody out of their feelings. That, that's just not a wise thing to do because we feel what we feel. I mean, if I'm sad, I'm sad. You, you coming to me and say, well, you know, you shouldn't be sad. That's not good counsel. The reality is, is I am. And the answer to the emotion is, well, you know, in sadness, the Bible says, man, we, there's sadness in the evening, but joy comes in the morning. So don't worry, the Lord's going to give you joy. And, and when you're dealing with someone with emotions, to try to talk them out of their emotions, it doesn't even make sense. They're feeling what they're feeling, and what they need is knowledge from God's Word to temper the emotion. And let me just say this, and I've said it before, but it's worth repeating. Emotions are real, but if you're one that typically acts out of emotion, you're going to make a lot of mistakes because emotions are real, but they don't always tell us the truth. You can be mad about something that we shouldn't be mad at at all, and you can be sad about something that really doesn't require sorrow. It's just our emotions. They get the best of us. And they can be overwhelmingly strong. And emotions are God's gift to us. They help us in a variety of different ways. But just remember this. You can be zealous and passionate and act out of emotion, but know this. Your emotions don't always tell you the truth. And when you and I act out believing a lie, sin is crouching at the door. And a big mistake is about to take place, just like Peter. It was a huge mistake for him to take his sword out and try to take down, what did he think? Is he going to take down, I mean, he went after a servant. What did he think about the Roman soldiers? Is he going to take down all 600 of them as well? I mean, he obviously wasn't thinking too straight. He was acting in the moment. He was acting in the emotion of the moment. And I believe, in addition to this, I believe that Peter was probably in a very serious spiritual battle, wrestling with his emotions, hearing his rabbi, his friend Jesus, tell him that he's going to deny three times and having to wrestle with the reality of, I'm not going to deny three times. What's wrong with Jesus? What's happening? We need to have him more longer on the earth. He can explain that. I mean, just wrestling. It's the battle for his life. And he gives in to the emotion and, and finds himself in a place. Well, I, I find, he finds himself in a place of absolute out of control. And maybe his actions here were zealous and emotionally driven. Because when we lose contact in that abiding relationship with Jesus, we'll often try to make up for it with zeal. When we're not abiding in the Lord, as he tells us in John 15, we try to make up, with, make up for that in activity. So you'll find someone where, you know, you've been distant from the Lord for a while. You've been disconnected and, and you want to come back. So you say, you know, I'm going to read more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to serve more. I'm going to give more. And you're making up for it in all this activity, but never really being led by the Lord. None of it's really directed by him. It's all emotion driven. 
Some of you are in the fight of your life because of emotions. One side not willing to give in. One side not willing to repent. Whether things are good or not, we want to have that steady relationship where we are led by the Spirit. In Romans 8.14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. We don't want to get into, church, we want to be very careful that we don't get into a cycle of rededicating our lives every single week while jumping back into a worldly lifestyle seconds after leaving a church building. Where we live in cycle of condemnation and regret, that's not God's heart for you. It's not God's heart for you to be so emotionally driven, to find yourself committing some sin, and then the weight of guilt and condemnation, and then you go farther, and you commit another sin, and then the weight of guilt and condemnation, and then you go far, and before you know it, you've wandered away, but then you come to your senses, you come back, I'm going to rededicate, and then you start finding you're drifting away, and before you know it, that's your life. Sin, rededication, sin, rededication. Listen, listen, let me just clarify. If you're in a place in your life right now where rededication and commitment to Jesus Christ is needed and necessary in your life, by all means, do it. Do it now without any hesitation, not holding anything back. But listen, it's not God's heart for you to live a life like that. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Because here's the thing. You don't know, and I don't know, when that last cycle of sin will be the one that destroys you. You kind of go out thinking, well, I've rededicated before so I can do it again. And you just don't know. You're messing around with fire, man, and you're going to get burned. No, what the Bible teaches is something far different. The Bible teaches that when God forgives us, he frees us from guilt and condemnation. The Bible says in Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. In Isaiah 43, verse 25, It says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Micah chapter 7, verse 18, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. That's old covenant characteristics of God. How much more in the new covenant of the blood of Jesus Christ where the Bible says that when you are born again, when I'm born again, that we immediately and instantly become new creations in Christ. Old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. That is something to rejoice with God. That's your life. That's your life. You're not, you don't have to go through, I'm a new creation, I'm an old creation, I'm a new, I got to get born again a thousand times. Listen, when you're born again, God changes you. And let me just say, I am so glad I did not meet the old you. I mean, when I was the old me, (laughs) I met the old you in many ways as you walk into the church and God changes your life. But I'm glad that you and I didn't meet when we were, well, before we were born again. It would have been disastrous. But it's not that way. You are not the old you. The Bible declares that the old you has died and you are a new creation in Christ. For those of you that realize this, you now begin to walk in the wisdom of God so that your zeal and your passion is tempered by the knowledge of God's word and confirmed by his truths so that you're not zealous without knowledge, but you're zealous with knowledge. And whatever's going on in Peter's life here, I'm very, very grateful. 
that according to Dr. Luke, we know in Luke 22, that Jesus answered and said, permit even this, and he touched the ear and healed him. And to me, it's just a blessing to see that the last healing that Jesus performed was to help clean up a disciple's mess. And how many messes in our lives has God been so faithful to come alongside and clean up for us and restore and rescue us, even from ourselves? Well, in verse 12, it says, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Really? Did you need to tie him up? And they led him away to Annas first, who was the spiritual high priest, and he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, which the political religious, appointed political, where the, 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 the day, the time, had religion mixed with the government. So here they are. Now he's the politically appointed high priest, and there they are together um, being used to accomplish God's will. Because in verse 14, it says it was Caiaphas who gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, he only meant it to bring peace to the Roman Empire, to bring peace to Jerusalem. But in reality, even though he had no connection with God, he was speaking the truth that it was more expedient for one to die for the salvation of all. He just didn't know it. And it just reminds me, God can use anybody in our lives. God can use anything in our lives to get our attention and to bring us to a place of submission. And we'll get into more of that next time. So, Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to confirm the things that were spoken here today, to even add some things, God. You're the teacher. Holy Spirit, you teach us. You lead us into all truth. You guide us. You bring to remembrance the things that have been taught to us. So we just yield to you, God, that you might speak right into our hearts, that you might speak right into the very core of our souls, Even as every service this weekend, a precious baby was in my arms. A baby that, well, like little Ava Rose, Lord, just so dependent upon mom and dad, so trustworthy, just that that immediate love connection. May that be ours with you. That even in our age, God, we we would be so in love relationship with you. We would be so trusting of you. We, we We would, even in our... Even in the actions of our lives, Lord, we'd submit ourselves to you and accept the work that you're wanting to accomplish in our lives. And God, I pray for those that are listening in right now, maybe listening in on the radio in Albuquerque or listening on the radio in Hawaii or all around the country or right here in Colorado, right here in this room, watching on a computer screen somewhere or downstairs in the overflow, that today's the day that you have appointed for them to come to know you. You have drawn them. The Bible says no one comes to the Father except, in, except that they be drawn. And so you've been drawing them with your cords of love. And today's the day, just like your Bible says, today's the day of salvation. And so if you're here, as the church is praying for you, if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet right now that we could pray with you, that you can make a public commitment to following Jesus right here in this room. Of course, you guys that aren't in this room, you have to acknowledge it in some way. But for you here that are in front of me, if you're here today, you'd say, man, I need to get my life right with God. I have been facing the worst day of my life, perhaps. And you know, God uses trials to get our attention like no other thing. 
And I'm sorry that the trial is so hard and I'm sorry that when you think of it, it just brings tears and emotion to you. I wish, I wish you didn't have to go through it. I wish you didn't have to wake up to it every day. But I know this. Even as we wake up to a trial, we wake up to a God that's greater and a God that's faithful and a God who sacrificed his own son to die on a Roman cross who was buried and rose again the third day to receive you into relationship and into his family. So if you're here, and I believe you are, and you know today's a day that you need to get your life right with God, would you just stand to your feet? We want to pray with you right here that today's a day. God bless you. God bless you. You know who you are. God bless you. The Lord is working in your life. It's not, you're not responding to a man even though I'm speaking. God is speaking. He's speaking to you personally and privately. He's revealing things to you I don't know anything about. Through the message of the gospel, the Holy Spirit grabs hearts. God bless you in the back. You guys on the radio, we acknowledge you praying. You guys at Laramel County Jail, we acknowledge you. The Denver Jail. We know you're listening, gathering around a radio. Today's the day that God would bring you close. Submit yourself to him. Submit yourself willingly and freely. Ask God to forgive you. You could say something like this. You ready? You could pray, God, I admit that I've sinned against you and I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe you lived, Jesus, died and rose again to forgive me of my sin. And I submit my life to you from this day forward. Help me, God, to repent and turn away from my sinful past. God, I know anyone, anywhere that prays that prayer. Your word says anyone that comes to you, you won't cast them out. But we also know that you gave us a story about the seed that was planted. And and only one of those seeds took root. And I just pray for those that responded today, like so many of us before them have responded, that it was the real deal, that they were changed forever. That today, God, you would would take them and, and you would use them and they would grow in your grace and your knowledge. And Lord, you be glorified in our lives. You be lifted up. And then we be praying, God, and seeking your face for all that you want to accomplish. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. God bless you. Let's stand together, church. We pray that you've been touched by this study from Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call area code 303-628-7200. Be blessed this week in the Lord.